there are no good guys and no bad guys in Scripture. So much as just sinners and one perfect man. Welcome to Rogue Grace. This is Peter John on this Wednesday morning in anticipation of our gathering tonight in the sanctuary at 7 o'clock for our midweek Bible study beginning the book of Solomon's Wisdom and Opining, the book of Ecclesiastes. So join us, join my dad tonight in the sanctuary for Ecclesiastes in chapter 1. Thanks for joining this morning. That Jesus said, destroy my body and in three days I will raise it up again is a great statement that reminds us that Jesus, that shows us that Jesus, that demonstrates that Jesus is trustworthy. That his claims to exclusive truth, such as, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me, are all validated by That one event where Jesus did what he said and in three days he rose again from the dead. That is the exclusive truth by which we lay everything we believe about Jesus upon. He said, I will give you one sign to hang it all on. If it's not true, discard it. Forget it. I'm just another imposter, another wannabe, so to speak. But if it be true, then he is indeed God in the flesh. You know who Frederick Nietzsche was, right? That German, quote, philosopher, end quote, who was at the least uh, agnostic, more like an atheist. (laughs) He said, all claims to exclusive truth is nothing more than a power grab. All claims to exclusive truth is nothing more than a power grab. That's true. Anyone who claims I've got the corner on the truth is making some kind of power grab. However, with Jesus Christ, it is a valid claim and he is right to make that power grab. I like, you've heard of the the Nietzsche quote that somebody spray painted on a wall 
in New York City, from what we understand, from how the story goes. There in the 1960s, during the Jesus movement days, somebody took some spray paint and wrote, God is dead, signed Nietzsche. Remember that? Remember Nietzsche saying that and that became a cover on Time Magazine, God is dead, and then signed Nietzsche? Well, somebody else took some another color of spray paint and over that wrote, Nietzsche is dead, signed God. <laughs> I love it. God has the last word, and it's proven through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Quickly, I'd like to tell you how not to start a religion. That is how Christianity sprung forth against every other kind of valid explanation. Everything that goes against our own thoughts or what we might consider to be the way to begin a religion. <laughs> Listen to how Jesus started a religion that is Christianity. How not to start a religion is how else we could call it. Number one, include your mother and brothers. You see, Jesus' mother and his brothers knew who he really was. And if ever there was a person to say, yeah, right, it would have been his mom. It would have been his brothers. But even they worshipped Jesus when he rose again from the dead. See, um, my mother never has made that mistake of calling me Lord. Accidentally. Lord, I, I mean Pete. Uh, my sisters, my brothers never fallen down and called me Lord or Master. But Jesus's did. <laughs> Number one, include your mother and brothers. Number two, start with fishermen and tax collectors. How not to start a religion. See, in Jesus's time, as you may know, normally rabbis would select the most educated and the most qualified of young men to learn from them, to take from them, and ultimately to become rabbis. Jesus, on the other hand, said, follow me to a group of blue-collar workers, an IRS agent, tax collector, and fishermen. And now we see them, these disciples of Jesus in the epistles quoting scripture, taking care of widows and orphans, laying down their lives. They laid down their lives. Ultimately, rarely will a person die for truth, not to mention die for a lie. No one will do that. And these men, these disciples, laid down their life for what they knew to be the truth. 
Number three, how not to start a religion. Use women in the first century as original eyewitnesses. (laughs) You see, in that time and in that place, as you know, testimony of a woman was inadmissible in the court of law. This was true both in Rome and in Jerusalem. So for women to say that we saw Jesus is risen from the dead as they did, as the first eyewitnesses, the original eyewitnesses before any men, could have actually undermined the credibility of that statement. But it didn't. Jesus did more for rights and respect of women than any man who has ever lived. And he used women as the original eyewitnesses. Number four, how not to start a religion. Don't include your mother and your brothers. Don't start with fishermen and tax collectors. Use women as original eyewitnesses. Number four, splinter off from devout Judaism. After all, is not in the Ten Commandments the first you will have no other gods before me. Was it not by Jesus' time in the heart of every Jew not to be polytheistic, not to worship man or idols or persons? And yet this man, Jesus, claimed to be the great I am. He did so seven different times in the Gospel of John alone. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. That's not how you are to start a new religion when you are from Judaism. And yet something happened in which in that very religion itself sprouts Christianity in the city of Jerusalem. Number five, how not to start a religion. Move the day of worship from the Sabbath to Sunday. How important it was to worship on the Sabbath day for the Jews ever since the book of Genesis when God rested on the seventh, the Sabbath day. And yet as Christians, they began to gather on the day Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. (laughs) We gather on Sunday. We gather because the tomb is not full. It is empty because Jesus rose on that day, Sunday. We don't care if there's a Super Bowl. We still gather on Sunday. Number six out of seven. Six, make the Passover meal all about you. (laughs) And that's exactly what Jesus did. He took the Exodus, the feast of Passover, the sacrifices, and said, it's all about me. That's what he said on that last supper, didn't he? Do this in remembrance of me. What? This Passover meal. 
That's radical, guys. That's like me saying to you right now, listen, on the 4th of July, I know, I know up to now the fireworks in the air at the park, at the coast. Those fireworks are awesome to remember the independence of our nation when we declared our independence there in 1776 on the 4th of July. I know, I know that's great, but that's just a warm-up. It was really talking about, speaking about, pointing to me. It's all about, not the United States of America, it's all about me. Would you go with that? Probably, no, absolutely not. And yet Jesus said all of those temple sacrifices, feasts, the exodus, and the Passover meal, the Passover meal, that Passover that they experienced in Egypt, that Passover night where the angel of death passed over their homes, the Passover meal, it's all about me. That's not how you start a religion, unless it's a true one. And finally, number seven, how not to start a religion? Recruit a known terrorist to be the spokesman. <laughs> and I'm talking not about the 12 disciples. I'm talking about one who wasn't even one of the 12. In fact, while they were busy following Jesus, he was busy persecuting. He was busy persecuting Christians while the other apostles were beginning the church. That would be like, let's, let's use a, a more modern example. Let's say Osama bin Laden says, okay, when he was alive, of course, he says, okay, I know I've been a terrorist against America. I know I've funded attacks on New York City and against America, but I'm switching teams. Now I'm running for senator. One of my relatives lives in the United States, therefore I am going to try and run for the Senate. <laughs> That'd be a little crazy, wouldn't it? If Osama bin Laden said now, I'm a senator for the United States of America. Well, in many ways, Paul, he was Saul of Tarsus. He was the Osama bin Laden who terrorized on behalf of Islam. Islam, Saul terrorized on behalf of Judaism, right? Remember that? And then he switches teams. No wonder they had a hard time buying into that. They had a hard time accepting Paul the Apostle, who was previously Osama bin Laden, as it were, Saul of Tarsus. So when you take these seven things, you see, this is not how to start a religion. Number one, include your mother and brothers. Number two, start with fact fishermen and tax collectors. Number three, use women as original eyewitnesses. Number four, splinter off from devout Judaism. Number five, move the day of worship from the Sabbath to Sunday. Number six, make the Passover meal all about you. And number seven, recruit a known terrorist for a spokesman. What is the logical conclusion? 
There is no other possible reason for the Christian faith than Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Your love is like radiant diamonds bursting inside us. We cannot contain your love will surely come find us like blazing wildfire singing your name God
Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 25. Now, nor was it to offer Jesus Christ himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, but not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly are waiting for him. When Jesus Christ appears again, it will not be like he came the first time, which was to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. I can't wait till Jesus comes the second time. I mean, I must wait. But in a sense, I can't wait. You know what I'm saying. The first coming of Jesus prepared us for the second coming of Jesus. The first coming of Jesus dealt with our sin. He laid down his life as a sacrifice. The second coming of Jesus, he is going to be the king of kings, ruling and reigning not coming as a servant, but as his majesty. You see, the Jews, even up to this day, don't understand that the Messiah had to, must suffer in the way Jesus did, even though the Old Testament is full of such prophecies and foresight that the Messiah will suffer. Just look at Isaiah 53 for the example of the wounds and the pain and the blood and the hurt of the Messiah. So the Jews accept the scriptures that proclaim the Messiah's glory when he comes and they spiritualize his suffering. Jesus came and literally not only was a man, but a man who suffered. And that was his first coming, fulfilling all of those prophecies of Isaiah 53 and other places in Scripture that tells us how the Messiah would suffer. And when he comes again, it will be in his glory for those who are eagerly waiting for him. See, the Jews don't understand that there are two comings of the Messiah, like you and I do. That the Messiah came the first time to suffer and the second time to reign. Oh Lord, you've already suffered. You laid down your life. We anticipate your coming to reign. I can't wait. When we come back, we'll look again at Hebrews chapter 9 verse 23 to verse 28, as I just read it. And we'll talk about how 
there is a provision for your consciousness. Not just for covering it, but cleaning. Isn't it nice to have a clean conscience? We'll be right back. And to the one who sits upon the
blood of Jesus Christ purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. The blood of Jesus purifies your conscience. See, the whole chapter here is dealing with the Old Testament sacrifices simply as a picture or a preview of the reality of Jesus's sacrifice. And those Old Testament sacrifices, while they would cover your conscience, they could not cleanse it. Let me read to you what it says in my notes of my Bible, the, the, the notes that came with this Bible. I think it says it well. It reads, The Mosaic sacrificial system brought neither sanctification of the soul nor the fullness of God's peace into the inner life of the worshiper. This is in contrast with the new covenant. And so you would be giving these sacrifices, but although it would cover, it couldn't cleanse your conscience. I mean, you're giving the sacrifice and you're saying, okay, it's covered for now. But wait till I mess up again. I got to do this again. See, it's always a matter of the conscience. And Hebrews says it did not make perfect as to the consciousness of the people. But now the blood of Jesus, we read, has come to cleanse our conscience. Thank you, Lord, that it's no longer about me making sure that the blood is shed or the sacrifices are made for my errors in order to ease my conscience, but it's that it's already been done. It's already been shed. The salvation has already been shared. That is what cleanses the conscience. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. When that person in the Old Testament brought that bull or that ox, when they brought that lamb to the place of sacrifice for their sins, they realized that animal is dying for my sin as that animal was being split the throat was being slit. And there you realize that you, if that was you bringing the offering, as you watched that lamb or that bull lose its life right before your eyes at the hands of the priests, right in front of you, you realize that you were the cause. This would cover your conscience. But it wouldn't cleanse it. It couldn't cleanse it. It wasn't final enough to cleanse it. Jesus Christ, the greater than the bull offering, the greater than the lamb offering, Jesus as the lamb of God, not only covers your conscience, but cleanses it. It is enough. There's nothing more. There's nothing more you or I can do. 
that's good news. You know, I'm sharing good news. And it's not sloppy agape. Look at the price that had to be paid. Look at the cost. How could you? How could I call that cheap grace? It was the most expensive price that anyone has ever paid. Praise be to the Lord.
All of his people praise the Lord. All of his people come out and praise the Lord. When you were an enemy of God, that is when Christ died for you. Now that you are a child of God, <laughs> how much more then is the love, the blessing, the power of God upon you? He died for you. Not when you were befriending him, when you were an enemy of him. And now you are his child. God is for you. Amen. We'll see you tonight. God bless.